We've made it to the last few chapters of the book of Judges. You're holding your breath for good reason if you know what's contained in these chapters. We're just going to look at chapters 17 and 18 this morning. And then, Lord willing, next week we'll finish up the study of Judges by looking at chapters 19, 20, and 21. I encourage you to read ahead. Be prepared. If we were looking at the chronology of Judges, weeks ago as we began back in chapter 1, I want you to think of our journey through the book of Judges like we were on a highway. Judges 1 represented the smoothest part of that highway. Newly paved, easygoing. We saw Caleb. We saw Othniel there. And I told you then, and I'll remind you now, that that's as good as the book of Judges would get. But we're still on this highway, and after we finished with Othniel, it wasn't long before a few bumps began to appear in the road with Ehud. Shamgar, Deborah, though at this point we were easily evading those potholes, so to speak, and making our way, a few more miles down the road the potholes got a little larger. We came to Jephthah, Samson. This morning we're off the pavement. We're on the gravel road in unmapped territory. And it seems like the book of Judges has gone completely off the rails. When you read chapter 20, chapter 19, Lord willing, we'll get to those next week and you will be reminded of what I'm talking about. What we see in these last chapters of the book of Judges is what one writer calls Israel wallowing in her own religious mess. This is also a moral mess. It's akin to going out and finding a rock that on the surface is beautiful. You can see a lot of the effects of time. You turn that rock over and what you see are all the worms and the bugs, maybe even a snake underneath. The book of Judges has been turned over here in these last few chapters. That being so, is it any wonder that you've heard so few sermons from Judges chapters 17 through 21? And I'll ask for a literal show of hands here. Do any of you remember having heard a sermon from these chapters? Probably few and far between. I can say in 20 years of preaching, I've never preached a sermon from these chapters. I've never braved through these turbulent or rough waters until today. It seems like I say this fairly often, and it's good to repeat. A commitment to systematic preaching through a book often takes us places we would not otherwise go. And I can tell you with all certainty, I would have never on a Monday morning woken up and said to myself, Judges 19 seems to be a good thing to preach this week. But here we are, nonetheless, God help us, chapter 17 and 18 today, 19, 20, and 21 next week, and in doing so, we can make no apologies for the Word of God. The Word of God does not need us 
to hide our faces in shame by the things that it presents to us. And I want to set your mind at ease, especially concerning next week. I have small children here too, and I don't want to unduly frighten or harm them by the things that we would read in Judges 20. So be praying for me this week as we get ready to look at the 19th and 20th chapters of this book. In many ways, these last few chapters of the book of Judges represent for us what Paul would write to Timothy. And I'm not really referencing the timing because Paul would preface his words by saying, in these last days. And the last days really represent that period of time between Jesus' ascension into heaven and his second coming. So the timing is not what I'm after here. It's more so the description when he says, in these days perilous or dangerous times will come. Men will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy, unloving, unforgiving, slanderers, without self-control, brutal, despisers of good, traitors, headstrong, haughty, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having a form of godliness but denying its power. That seems to be a description of the people in Judges 17 and 18. I'll remind you that the verse that we have referenced several times is embedded here in chapter 17 and it's the sixth verse which tells us that there was no king in Israel and people were doing what was right according to their own eyes. In those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. There are warnings to be heeded here for us. And I'm going in reverse here just a bit this morning. I want to give you the applications before we actually look at what's contained in chapters 17 and 18. The first application of these chapters is this. Pragmatism is a poor guide. Pragmatism basically says this. If it works, it must be right. If it seems to work, then it must be right. Pragmatism sadly drives much of the contemporary church. And I'm not just pointing fingers at outside. I'm wanting us to do a real heart inspection of our own lives. Pragmatism is found over and over again in these chapters. There are three illustrations of this in chapters 17 and 18. Two in chapter 17, one in chapter 18. Pragmatism is not just a poor guide, it's very often a damning guide. That's the first application. The second is this. Success is not necessarily a sign or indication that we are doing something right. Very akin to the first, but just stated a little differently. Success is not necessarily a sign that we are doing things right. We have to properly define what we mean by success. 
The third application is this. God does not stifle every corrupt thought and scheme of the human heart. He does not always put up a roadblock to our ideas. The next point is this. Syncretized religion. And that also seems to be what is at play in chapter 17 and 18. A smorgasbord of religion. Where God's name is invoked, where there are prayers offered up to him, where there are blessings received from his hand, but the question begs, did he send these blessings? Syncretized religion is of the devil, the adversary. That's what we see here in these chapters. And in the last, I hope that you have heard of the regulative principle of worship. The regulative principle, put simply, means that the scriptures regulate the worship of God's people. Everything that we do, we must find specific direction in scripture for it. Now, even in that, we have to differentiate, and I don't want to go on and on about this, but we have to differentiate between what elements of worship are, elements or things like praying, reading the scriptures, singing with grace in our hearts to the Lord, preaching the word. And then there are circumstances, like when will we meet? What time? 10.30? 11? Those things are not dictated to us in scripture, but the things that are, we must pay careful attention to them. And as we get ready to look at these chapters, I want to let you know that what we are about to see, or rather, what we are about to smell, smells like Romans 1. You're familiar with Romans 1, probably far more so than you are with Judges 17 and 18. Romans 1 is that chapter where we have the description of a culture, a society, that God just gives up, turns them over to themselves to carry out the lusts of their heart. You remember the reason in Romans 1 is because they exchanged the truth of God for the lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. This is the reason Paul says in the 26th verse of that chapter that God gave them up to vile passions. And even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over to a debased mind to do those things which are not fitting. So we have the precursor to Romans 1 here in Judges 17 and 18. Let's look at it. I'm going to break it down in three sections. The first, the first six or so verses of the 17th chapter deal with a man named Micah. This is not the prophet Micah. This is someone far different. Then in chapter 7 through the end of chapter 17, we're introduced to a young man from Bethlehem in Judah who was a Levite, a priest. And then in chapter 18, the whole tribe of Dan, the Danites, come onto the scene. And with each one of these, with Micah, the young Levite from Bethlehem, and the tribe of Dan we see what it is like for every man to do what is right 
in his own eyes. And for God to completely have given over this people. The Lord's name is only mentioned a couple of times in these last five chapters. And even those are not necessarily in a positive sense. So let's look at this first illustration. And these are all illustrations, I'm calling them, of confused religion, misguided actions, and misunderstood providence. Confused religion because there are elements of religion here. I mean, they understand they need to have a priest. They understand that they need to offer sacrifices. They just go about it all wrong. Their actions are misguided, and then they even misunderstand the providence of God, giving him credit for things that he did not do in a way that they supposed. So let's read the first six verses. Notice we're just on the heels of Samson. Samson dies in verses 31 through 32 of the last chapter after having judged Israel for 20 years. Then abruptly in verse 1 of chapter 17, now there was a man from the mountains of Ephraim whose name was Micah. And he said to his mother, the 1,100 shekels of silver that were taken from you and on which you put a curse even saying it in my ears, here is the silver with me. I took it. His mother said, may you be blessed by the Lord, my son. So when he had returned the 1,100 shekels of silver to his mother, his mother said, I, I wholly dedicated the silver from my hand to the Lord for my son. Here's, here's the first introduction of complete irony. Notice what she says. I wholly dedicated the silver from my hand to make a carved image and a molded image. Now therefore I will return it to you. Thus he returned the silver to his mother. Then his mother took 200 shekels of silver and gave them to the silversmith and he made it into a carved image and a molded image and they were in the house of Micah. The man Micah had a shrine and made an ephod and household idols. And he consecrated one of his sons who became his priest. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. All kind of problems with this, right? Let's look at them in turn and see how this is indeed an illustration of confused, misguided, and misunderstood religion and providence. Micah is a thief. He stole from his mother. We might say those two things compounded make him an especially bad thief. He's broken two commandments already. He has stolen, and he's not honored his mother. But apparently his mother, notice he says, you said this in my hearing, supposed herself to be some kind of a diviner when she says, or he says, you have placed a curse on this money. And apparently that awakened 
his guilty conscience. He was more afraid of the curse pronounced by his mother than he was of his creator having transgressed him. So he returns it and said, here's the money. I took it. And his mother says to this thief who has dishonored her by thieving from her, may you be blessed by the Lord, my son. And then we read this already, but we need to see it again because it sets the stage for everything that follows. I had wholly dedicated the silver from my hand to the Lord for my son to make a carved image and a molded image. What's the second commandment? Don't do this. It's very clear. It was given in Exodus 20. It was given again in Deuteronomy 5, the re-giving of the law, just before this people made their way into the promised land. But because the people of God were not obedient, God told them in the beginning, drive all the peoples out, lest you be ensnared by their gods and begin to take up their worship. And now at the end of this, we're, we're coming to the end of the period of the judges. At the end of this, there is a melting pot, so to speak, of a little bit of true religion given to them by God and all of these other false gods that have been put together and it has informed and shaped this woman and her son's thinking so that she can say, I am wholly dedicating this money to the Lord to make a carved image. And we say how ludicrous and rightly so. But we need to keep reading and we need not to lose all of this on ourselves. And be careful that our thinking is not as skewed as hers. We live in a melting pot of religion as well. There's all kinds of things that are passed off as gods and worship in the culture in which we live. There are all kinds of things said and proposed by professing Christians that are just as ludicrous as the things that she says here. Let us not be of that number. And we're going to see the only way that we can not be of that number is to hear the word of God and be obedient to it. That's where we're going to end. That's where the writer of the book of Judges ends in chapter 18. But notice the even more devious nature of this woman. After she receives back her 1,100 shekels of silver that she wholly dedicated, she only actually turns over 200 shekels to be made into a false god and false images. The thing to take away from this man, Micah, is that he had a shrine in the fifth verse. He made an ephod, and in that he's just like Gideon. He had household idols. And he consecrated one of his sons who became his priest. So he defiles even one of his own children in his pagan worship. And then we get to that verse that tells us that this was happening after Joshua and before David. This was happening after 
the man of God, Joshua, who would have put an end to this, and before the godly David, who would certainly have restrained it. So what's in view here in the sixth verse is not just any king, but a king who would do right. But in that man's absence, everyone did what was right in his own eyes. That takes us into the second illustration of confusion and misguided actions and misunderstood providence in verse 7. There was a young man from Bethlehem in Judah of the family of Judah, and he was a Levite. So far, so good. Everything's going in his favor, right? This is as good as it gets for him, too. The man departed from the city of Bethlehem in Judah to stay wherever he could find a place. He came to the mountains of Ephraim to the house of Micah. And Micah said to him, where do you come from? And he said, I am a Levite from Bethlehem in Judah, and I am on my way to find a place to stay. And put yourself in Micah's shoes here for just a moment. He's got everything wrong, but this is where at least he has some symbolism of true religion. Lo and behold, there comes someone knocking on his door who's of the right tribe, from the right place, looking to do the right thing, he had just consecrated one of his own sons to do the job that this man was about to take over. Micah persuades this man to stay, but notice what he asks him to do in verse 10. Dwell with me and be a father and a priest to me. Not of the one true and living God, but of my own false househood idols. And notice what he promises to this man. I will give you ten shekels of silver per year, a suit of clothes, and your sustenance. He's going to make full provision for him. So the Levite went in. He was content to dwell with the man, and the young man became like one of his sons. So Micah consecrated the Levite, and the young man became his priest and lived in the house of Micah. Now here is where this jumps off the page at us in what Micah says. He says, now I know the Lord will be good to me since I have a Levite as a priest. How confused, how misguided, how misunderstood, how syncretistic, but how like so many of us. We have to ask the question, on what basis, Micah, do you think this? On what basis can you say, now you are certain the Lord will be good to you? I have a Levite as priest. The only basis he had to say this was because this appeared to be right in his eyes. That's the sixth verse. But yet also, perhaps because there were no hindrances to any of this. 
The Lord did not put up a roadblock and shut a door. He allowed it. We would say that this was indeed an open door. And after all, did God not make this provision? The Lord, he says here, has sent me a priest. The Lord will be good to me. Can we just admit this to one another and be honest? Every open door is not of the Lord. Every open door is not of the Lord. If your primary way of discerning the will of God is to walk through an open door and not walk through a closed one, be careful. Let me give you an illustration. God told Jonah to do what? Go to Nineveh, cry out against that great city. Jonah said, I will not. If all that we had to apply, whether or not we were in the will of God, wouldn't it seem right for Jonah to say, the Lord opened the door for me to find a ticket on a boat to Tarshish? He didn't close that door, so it must be right. I'll step through it. He made provision for me. I have the ticket in my hand. I am on the boat. There has to be more in discerning the will of God and in pleasing God than just taking the next unhindered step. Because very often, unhindered steps are the wrong ones to take. We have to combat this thinking in our mind because we have heard so often if the door is open, walk through it. If the Lord shuts it, Turn around and go the other way. When biblically speaking, it may be that you need and I need to sit before that closed door. Ask, seek, knock, pray that then it will be opened to you. And not just give up and go the way of Micah or the way of Jonah and begin to say such ludicrous things as this. Now I know the Lord will be good to me. Because he has given me a, pre a Levite as a priest. Every open door is not of the Lord and then necessarily so a closed door doesn't mean you shouldn't press on. Every case is different. Seek to be led by the Spirit. Be obedient to the Scriptures. Be in the Scriptures. When you have a, a looming large decision, which they seem to come up fairly often, don't they? When you have those things, don't be subjective. If you're a professing Christian, there is no need to be subjective. Give yourself to the truth. Pray. Seek the Lord. And he will give you the desires of your heart. That doesn't mean that in the end he is going to give over to what you want. What it means is as you are seeking him very often, he's going to change the desire of your heart to match his and then give it to you. So we see that, this, that Micah is totally confused. And we have to feel for him really. He's a product of his syncretistic culture. It's almost as if we want to go to him, grab him by the shoulders and shake him and wake him up, but we can't. But we have opportunity to speak the truth in love to those in our own society who are just as blind to this truth.
So we've seen the first two illustrations of this. We've seen Micah himself. Then we've seen how he has acted with this young man from Bethlehem and Judah, setting him up as a priest. We're reminded in the 18th chapter in verse 1, in those days there was no king. Why does that keep coming up? There was no king to restrain all the foolishness. There was no godly king to put an end to it and call people back to the Lord. People are running wild and doing what they want to do. No restraint. And in those days, the tribe of the Danites was seeking an inheritance for itself to dwell in. The reason here is given for until that day, their inheritance among the tribes of Israel had not fallen to them. We're not going to read all of these intervening chapters, but if you were to read chapter 5 down through the next several verses, it's almost a mirror image of the spies being sent out. Joshua and Caleb being in that number. Going out to spy out a land that was fortified, but yet a good land. Coming back and giving a report. Yes, let's go and take the land. It's almost word for word. Till you get down into the 10th verse where the spies come back and they give a report, God has given it into your hands, a place where there is no lack of anything that is on the earth. That's their way of saying it's a land flowing with milk and honey. The Danites, being one of the tribes, had yet to inherit their land. So now they're going after it. We pick up in verse 11 where they send 600 men armed with weapons of war. They went up and camped in Kirjath-Jerim in Judah. They passed through the mountains to Ephraim, and lo and behold, where do they find themselves? At the doorstep of this man named Micah. In verse 14, the five spies, they come and they say, Do you not know that there are in these houses an ephod, household idols, a carved image, a molded image? Now therefore, consider what you should do. What should they have done? They should have turned and ran. But they turned aside there and came to the house of the young Levite man, to the house of Micah, and greeted him. The 600 men armed with their weapons of war, who were the, with the children of Dan, stood by the entrance of the gate. Then the five men who had gone to spy out the land went up. They entered, took the carved image, the ephod, the household idols, the molded image. The priest stood at the entrance of the gate with the men who were armed for war. When these went into Micah's house and took the carved image, the ephod and the idols, the priest said to them, what are you doing? And they said to him, be quiet. Now listen to the offer that they make him. Be quiet, put your hand over your mouth and come with us. Be a father and a priest to us. Is it better for you to be a priest to the household of one man or that you be a priest to a tribe and a family and Israel? 
here's his opportunity to take the next step up the ladder, to move on up. But in essence, all he's doing is giving his services to the highest bidder. The priest's heart, notice in verse 20, was glad. He took the ephod, the household idols and the carved image and took his place among the people. I'll paraphrase the next few verses. This did not please Micah at all. He was not happy with this new arrangement. As these 600 men take all of his household gods, his idol and his priest, he rallies the troops, chased them down, catches them. They ask him, what's wrong with you? What ails you? His confession is, you've taken everything that I own, you've taken everything that I have, I have nothing left, all my false gods, my priest. And basically the children of Dan outnumbered him, Micah realized that, and he fades off the scene. He turns and goes home. He couldn't do anything about it. So the Danites now have a priest. They have the carved images, the household idols, the ephod. All of these articles of false worship and false gods. And they go to take possession of the land. We're in verse 27. So they took the things Micah had made and the priest who had belonged to him and went to Laish to a people quiet and secure and they struck them with the edge of the sword and burned the city with fire. There was no deliverer because it was far from Sidon, and they had no ties with anyone. It was in the valley that belongs to Beth Rehob. So they built the city and dwelt there and called the name of the city Dan, after the name of Dan, their father, who was born to Israel. Then to close out this chapter, the last two verses, really a synopsis of these two chapters. The children of Dan set up for themselves the carved image and Jonathan, the son of Gershom, the son of Manasseh, you may have in your, in your notes here that this could be the son of Moses. And his sons were priests to the tribe of Dan until the day of the captivity of the land. So they set up for themselves Micah's carved image which he had made. And I stopped short on purpose. Notice how this ends. All the time that the house of God was in Shiloh. That's significant because there was still a prescribed means. There was still a prescribed priesthood. At this point in time, there was still a prescribed place. And it was not Dan. It was not Micah's house. The house of God, interestingly, the first use of that phrase in the Old Testament here, the house of God leads some to believe that there was a pre-tabernacle, tabernacle or temple set up in Shiloh where the true worship of God was to be 
carried on. But it made no difference. The reason it made no difference is they were intent on doing what was right in their own eyes. And they were well pleased to take a little bit of this, a little bit of that, compile it, and make and take into themselves a completely syncretistic, false, damning religion and way of worship. All the while, God had provided something so much better and true for them. I want you to go back with me briefly here to the book of Deuteronomy. If you know the book of Deuteronomy, you know that this is Moses' sermon where he is re-giving the law just prior to the people gaining entrance into the promised land. I'm going to read the first 12 verses of the 12th chapter and then the last few verses of the 12th chapter. Because even though it is right and true to agree with that sixth verse, there was no king and they were doing what was right in their own eyes. The Lord had not left them unto themselves. Notice what Moses says in Deuteronomy 12, verse 1. These are the statutes and judgments which you shall be careful to observe in the land which the Lord your God which the Lord God of your fathers is giving you to possess all the days that you live on earth. You shall utterly destroy all the places where the nations which you shall dispossess served their gods. Were they obedient to that? No, they were not. On the high mountains and on the hills and under every green tree, you shall destroy their altars. Were they obedient to that? No, they were not. You shall break down their sacred pillars, burn their wooden images with fire. You shall cut down the carved images of their gods and destroy their names from that place. You shall not worship the Lord your God with such things. Were they obedient to that? Again, no, they were not. But you shall seek the place where the Lord your God chooses out of all of your tribes to put his name for his dwelling place. And there you shall go. There you shall take your burnt offerings, your sacrifices, your tithes, your heave offerings, your hand, your vowed offerings, your freewill offerings, and the firstborn of your herds and flocks. And there you shall eat before the Lord your God, and you shall rejoice in all to which you have put your hand, you and your households, in which the Lord your God has blessed you. There were seasons of obedience to some of those commands, but those commands were not obeyed in full. Too many of the false gods, the false altars, and the prescribed means of worship of those gods were left behind and countenanced, taken to heart. Skip down with me now to the end of chapter 12. Because in the first 14 verses of this chapter, represents what the Lord says, do this, and you'll be blessed. The last few verses of this chapter represent what the Lord clearly says, do not do this, or you will be judged 
Verse 29, when the Lord your God cuts off from before you the nations which you go to dispossess and you displace them and dwell in their land, take heed to yourself that you are not ensnared to follow them after they are destroyed from before you and that you do not inquire after their gods saying, how did these nations serve their gods? I also will do likewise. You shall not worship the Lord your God in that way. For every abomination to the Lord which he hates, they have done to their gods. For they burn even their sons and daughters in the fire to their gods. Whatever I command you, be careful to observe it. You shall not add to it, nor take away from it. Nothing has changed. How does the book of Revelation end? The same way. Don't add, don't take away. And here we see the high price that is to be paid for not being obedient to the Lord. It leads to Judges 17 and 18 where there is no longer the ability to discern what is right and true from that which is falsehood and error. Because everything has become so jumbled up and mixed up, you just don't know what to believe anymore. Does that sound familiar? Does that sound like the day in which we live? Everything's just been thrown into the pot, mixed up and served and we don't know what to take and swallow and what to spit out. The only thing that can help us discern and know right from wrong, truth from error, is to be people of the book. To be obedient to the scriptures and Lord helping us moving forward. That's exactly what we'll be by the help of the Spirit of God and by much grace, by new mercies fresh every morning, we desire to follow closely what the scripture prescribes for us and not be inventors of new things. Paul would write to the Philippian church, hold fast to the word of life. God helping us, that's what we will do. One of the primary ways to do that is to preach the offensive gospel. That's different than preaching the gospel offensively. But the gospel by its very nature looks at a person lost in their sin, in the cords of sin, and calls sin what it is, and then prescribes the judgment that will come upon it, and call that same people to repent to turn to God, to turn to Christ. So when we read all of this, and granted, next week doesn't get any better. Not a bit. When we read all of this, we have to ask the question, what do we, living today, learn from it? What's the lesson? Well, of the many lessons we can learn, I think we can boil it down to this. 
Do what the Lord says and only what He says. Do what He says and only what He says. Be obedient to what He has clearly revealed. Use the means He has given to accomplish His purposes. We always go wrong. We always go wrong when we try to accomplish what we're called to accomplish for Christ, for our Father in Heaven, using our own means. That's why I began by saying one of the greatest applications is pragmatism is a poor guide. Just because something seems to work doesn't mean it's working. The only thing that will build the church of the Lord Jesus Christ is the Scripture. The only thing that will renew hearts and change lives is the gospel of Christ. That's what, Lord helping us, we will do and be. And we'll be unashamed as we do it. Mocked and jeered? Yeah, probably. But what is that compared to, in the end, hearing of our Lord and Savior, well done, you good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your Lord. That's what we desire to hear. And we'll hear it, God willing, so long as we are obedient to his word. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for these chapters. We realize that they're hard, hard to understand, hard to discern, and they only get more difficult. So help us to divide them rightly. Help us to recognize them as part of your inspired word. Every word of what we read in the scriptures this morning, inspired of God and profitable for us. Help us, Lord, to see this as food for our soul. Help us to learn the lessons that are here. Help us to go about your work in your way. Being obedient to the light that you have given. Help us to walk in it, to rejoice in it. And we ask that you would increase the light in which we walk. Lord, give us more understanding of the truth. Give us more understanding of how to apply it to our lives. Give us more understanding of how it applies to our families, to our work, especially to our gathered times of worship. Help us, Lord, to be obedient to what you've told us. And we're thankful for the ministry of Christ on our behalf. We look to him, trying to fix our gaze upon him who is the author and finisher of our faith. Lord, we look forward to that day and time when you return and gather your people into yourself. Gather all of your chosen into the barn. On that day of judgment, the day of grace will have ended. The opportunity to repent and believe the gospel will have come to a close.
So Lord, I pray that you would draw men unto yourself. We leave that in your hands. And we do so in Christ's name. Amen.